You're listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast, where we talk all things pregnancy, children, and parenting. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV 2 News podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health. Welcome to the Baby Your Baby podcast. I'm Holly Menino with KUTV 2 News, and today we're talking about autism. I'm joined by Colin Kingsbury, the Autism Systems Development Program Manager at the Utah Department of Health. Colin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And we also have Dr. Amanda Bakian, who is the Principal Investigator of the CDC's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Program here in Utah. Amanda, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's get right to it, you two. What is autism? So autism spectrum disorder, most commonly known as just autism, is a communication behavioral and social uh, developmental disorder. And there's a wide spectrum of that. So some people with autism are really high functioning and others can suffer from significant developmental delays. So now that we kind of have the definition and the overview of what it is, what is happening in the brain in a child that does have autism? That is a really difficult question to answer. What they've really struggled with is to do MRI studies on kids with autism. You know, a lot of them struggle with claustrophobia or something like that, or or feeling of like different uh, sensory sensations. So um, there's actually a study at BYU recently that just showed different ways in which MRIs can be done on children with autism. Um, And then, you know, once these are starting to be done, they're starting to find out that there's a lot of uh, variability in what's going on in the brain depending on if they're higher functioning or lower functioning, and then what areas they have those deficits in. Um, So, you know, we we really don't know yet. So it's kind of premature to say we know what's going on in the brain quite yet, but um, we're getting there. What about gene mutations? Do we we know much about that at this point? I've seen research out there that there is a mutation in the gene with autistic children. So there's actually been a fair bit of research done on the genetics behind autism. Uh, And the initial investigations into this area of research came because autism was identified as being a highly heritable condition, meaning it clearly runs in families. Mm -hmm. So given that it runs in families, that was our indicator that there was a strong genetic component to autism. And there has been, in the past 10 to 20 years, a lot of research in this area. And there have been over a 1,000 genes that have been implicated or associated with autism. These common gene variants are the ones that are inherited from one generation to another. Then there are genetic mutations that aren't directly heritable in the sense that they're not identified in mom or dad, but that genetic change is identified in the offspring and the child with autism, and those are considered what they're referred to as de novo mutations. So they're occurring in either the sperm or the egg, and typically they're associated with changes to the sperm between dad and and baby. So those mutations have been identified. And then there are genetic changes that are identified and directly linked to autism. And those are, are associated with genetic syndromes, such as like fragile X syndrome. But those explain a small proportion of autism cases. Five to 10% of autism cases are linked to these genetic syndromes, such as fragile X syndrome. So the genetic picture is very complex, although we know that autism really clearly clusters within families. 
So how does that empower parents? What about genetic testing? Yeah, so I would say genetic testing is still a controversial area. There are genetic tests that do exist out there, but again, because there's no clear pattern of genetic inheritance unless you have one of these genetic syndromes, which those genetic tests have existed for a long time. Outside of those genetic tests, looking for other clear genetic links is not definitive. And so while those tests exist, they don't always provide all the answers of where the genetic source of autism may come from. Okay, debunk for me the vaccines cause autism myth. Yeah, so there's actually two kind of different myths that run parallel to each other in uh, vaccines and autism. So the first is with the um, MMR vaccine. And that kind of started in the late 90s when a group of gastroenterologists published a case study on just you know 12 children with autism um, who were vaccinated. Um, and in, in that paper itself, they say, we did not link this vaccine and autism and more they were linking gastrointestinal, you know, tummy problems with autism and then that back to the vaccine. Um, since that time, there have been thousands of children studied and they have found no connection to any of those things. So, you know, basically they had a sampling mm-hmm. size, very small, um, and, you know, children with autism struggle with tummy problems all the time, a lot of constipation or diarrhea. So they've got a really narrowed in sample and they're pulling kids who are more likely to have autism anyway. And, and like I say, it's just the 12. And since that time, really a lot of research and study has been done in different countries, um, looking at vaccines and just thousands and thousands of children and they found no, no, no link there. Um, the other one has to do with thimerosal, which is a preservative that was in vaccines prior to 2001. Um, so proponents said, you know, we, we want to look at how the kids with autism reacted to the vaccine before thimerosal was taken out and after. And their theory was that if thimerosal is taken out, autism rates should go down. And we know that that's not the case. So since 2001, autism rates have gone up or remained steady. So you can say uh, kind of on a, a broad population-wide level, well, there's probably not a link there. Um, the other problem with those two studies is that they don't have any like biological links. So they're not proposing this is why this is happening and this is why this is causing autism on a biological level. So when you, when you take all that together, those um, myths kind of break down on their own. And, and throughout the whole process, they've kind of woven together or kind of moved the goalposts on what in the vaccine would be causing autism as you know, data comes out to show there's no link there. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about air pollution. Is there a connection between air pollution and autism? Uh, the relationship between uh, ambient air pollution exposure and risk of autism has been one that has been uh, of strong interest to pursue. So we've seen a lot of variation in terms of the uh, type of toxic exposures that happen from the ambient environment versus the criteria air pollutants. and. Studies are, are mixed and inconsistent that way. Um, and we are still actually currently right now in Utah looking at the relationship between pregnancy-related air pollution exposure and risk of autism. So those findings are pending, and we hope to have those released in the next year or so. Uh, but I think the, the take-home message is 
questions still remain in terms of that relationship. The effects that have been found vary across studies, vary across geographical locations, vary by populations, vary by air pollutant, uh, and are inconsistent. Uh, and more research needs to be done. But I think the real, a really important part of these studies are they provide some insight into mechanism across all of these studies that look in, at environmental risk factors for autism. They're tending to point towards a common mechanism, which is a role for inflammation during pregnancy and risk of autism. And that's the really important piece because many of these environmental exposures have that common mechanism underlying their mode of activity. I'm mean, going to get into that a little bit more with pregnancy and maternal factors yes. and, and the inflammation and explain that to the parents listening right now. Yeah, so, so in addition to environmental potential environmental contributors such as ambient air pollutant exposure. The other environmental factors that have been examined during pregnancy, because a really common feeling among scientists or, or strong hypothesis right now is it is risk of autism starts during pregnancy and that that is laying the foundation and it is what is happening during pregnancy that is incurring the risk for later development of autism. In addition to ambient air pollution, which probably results in inflammation happening in mom, uh, we also see maternal infections during pregnancy playing potentially an important role in the, in the cause of autism. Um, we also see high levels of maternal stress potentially playing a, a role. And, in, and the idea is that all of these, it's still not clear how that role is played, but they probably share that underlying mechanism of inflammation. It seems to be a big puzzle and a complicated one right now, but at least we've got you guys diving into this to try to get some answers. Uh, talk a little bit for our Utah listeners. Mm -hmm. Why is autism, do we know, the rate so high in the Beehive State? Mm -hmm. Autism and the diagnosis of autism and the definition of autism has changed over time. So the way the definition currently is defined by the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, commonly referred to as the DSM. The DSM did not first identified and defined autism in their third version, which wasn't published until the 1980s. So therefore, autism really as a diagnosis didn't really officially exist until then. They focused on identifying, doing a population ascertainment identification of all individuals with autism according to the DSM-3 in the 1980s. And in the mid-1990s, the definition changed again to a DSM-4 definition, got very broad. And it's during the DSM-4 that we saw our autism prevalence rates really increase. We were, have been fortunate to participate in what's considered the gold standard of autism epidemiology prevalence studies, which is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. We've participated in that network for a number of study years starting in 2002. And since our time participating in that network, our prevalence estimates have been among the highest among other participating sites in the CDC. And with the number of sites varying anywhere from about eight to 12 during that period of time. And we, what we do understand is that in Utah, we're very fortunate to have exceptional collaboration with all of our individuals in autism who are identifying children with autism. And partly because of that, that 
contributes to our high prevalence rates of autism. Talk a little bit, are there any other possibilities that you have learned in your research as to what could increase the chance of having autism? We know that people in Utah are, are very good about sharing information with each other. And so we do uh, wonder about potentially the role of these strong family and community networks and how there can be this sharing of information when one individual, when a parent has a child with autism and they're close with, with other family members and they, they share information about observations or concerns that they, that maybe a second parent has about their child. And so that information gets spread very easily about where uh, help can be found and resources can be found for ch children who are, for parents who are concerned about their children that have okay. children yeah. have autism. And that really speaks to the power of the mother. You know, Carmen Pingree uh, back in the day created this autism awareness campaign and then Cheryl Smith with the Autism Council of Utah has continued that and Laura Anderson and all these really powerful mothers who had a child with autism and have just gone out and spread awareness all throughout the state. Uh, making sure that parents know the signs and symptoms to look for. And we're going to get to those in a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk signs to look out for and the importance of early intervention as well. Right now, you're listening to the Baby Your Baby podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Baby Your Baby podcast. I'm Holly Minino, and with me today is Colin Kingsbury with the Utah Department of Health and Dr. Amanda Bakian. We continue our conversation about autism, and now let's get into what parents should be aware of. We want to talk about signs to look for, but first, Colin, tell me about the different levels of the spectrum. Yeah, so as you know, autism is a very wide spectrum. You know, you have some kids who are uh, nonverbal um, and really struggle with a lot of sensory issues. Um, and, and might require care for the rest of their lives. Um, that's what we in Utah like to call autism plus. Um, you know, that, that's something that the parents and the state and stakeholders really struggle to deal with um, and really helping these kids live the best lives they can live as they, as they grow into adults. And I do want to mention here they do grow into adults. You know, a lot of times we kind of mm -hmm. forget that, that they, they're going to live a full life. There's no reason that their life expectancy would be any lower. Um, and then you have a lot of folks kind of in the middle who might just have a lot of social anxiety or might struggle with sensory issues or sounds and stuff like that. And then you also have that really high functioning level, um, people who are just absolutely brilliant, you know, with great math skills or incredible art skills, um, but also struggle with those relationships, forming a relationship and understanding what... Uh, another person is, is looking for and, and what kind of situations you should act one way in versus acting another way. Talk about the, how can you recognize if your child has autism? What are some of the early signs? What should parents be looking for? Yeah, so, you know, early signs are when you smile at your child. Do they smile back at you? Um, do they have uh, uh, changing emotions on their face? Are they making eye contact? Um, do they point for you to go and get something? You know, these are all, are all good signs when they're when they're doing these things. Um, but more and more, we've kind of shifted to tell parents um, you want to have your child screened for autism at 18 and 24 months using the autism screener. It's called the MCHAT RF. Uh, it should be done by your pediatrician. You know, at that 18 month checkup and that 24 month checkup. But a lot of times it isn't. You know, we know healthcare has its issues right now, and the pediatrician might not have time 
or they might be a pediatrician who thinks, I know what autism looks like. And really what we're finding is it can be so easily missed in 15 minutes every six months. So that standardized screener uh, is really the way to go. It's only 20 questions. It's online for free. Um, a mother can do it in the comfort of her own home. And the questions are, are really easy. You know, like I mentioned, when you smile at your child, do they smile back at you? Do they make eye contact? You know, just really simple stuff like that. You mentioned 18 months. Is that the first indication or first age of indication or can it be earlier? Can it come later? You know, you can kind of start to see signs at six months, but that's a little bit too early to, to make any kind of diagnosis. So the earliest it can really be diagnosed is 18 months or, you know, kind of 24 months. So that's why those screeners are positioned the way they are. And you mentioned a couple things parents can do, but if they are that need is not being met at the pediatrician, they're not getting the sheet to look at, they're not having the screening, what are some other things they can do at home or some other things they should just be paying attention to in everyday life? I know our moms and dads are super busy, but what are some little things that they can just be keeping an eye on with their little one? Yeah, you know, back to eye contact. I think eye contact's probably the most important one. Are they making good eye contact with you? Um, do they have any sensory concerns? You know, some kids like to move their fingers around the, the um, periphery of their vision. That's a, that's a sign they can look for. Um, and, and, you know, really that reciprocity in, in emotion. Um, and then also, are they starting to use language correctly? Uh, are they babbling? Uh, are they starting to use two-word sentences on time? Um, that's that's kind of what parents are looking for. Okay. Talk about... Um why it's so important to have early intervention and to you know pick up on this early. Yeah, so gains that can be made while the brain is still plastic plastic, you know, when they're younger like that have tremendous a tremendous ability to impact them positively later in life. So as their brain is still forming and those connections are still forming, little things you do when they're two or three or four make huge impacts later in life. And the older a kid is, the harder it is to for those changes to sink in. What um, are some things parents can do besides recognizing it? What are some other things parents can do to help their kids? Well, um, if they think their child, uh, if they screen for having autism using the MCHAT, they can have an evaluation done. Um, unfortunately, there are some, some wait lists, wait times to get them in, you know. We're, we're not bad compared to the country as far as our waitlists are concerned, but um, it can be about six months at times. So that's why I tell parents, you know, call and get an evaluation scheduled um, if you think your child needs one. So that's number one. Um, and then number two is you can get them into what's called Applied Behavioral Analysis or ABA Therapy. Um, insurances in Utah are required to cover this if it's a Utah-based insurance and Medicaid covers it as well. So if you can get your child evaluated young and into that ABA therapy young, that's when you can really help them out. Um, we have some resource links that for all of the evaluators in Utah that do autism. Um, we've really stripped it down so parents can just look at the sheet and say, okay, that's the provider, that's their address, that's the insurance they take, here's their phone number. You've made it easy. We've made it as easy mm -hmm. as possible. Um, and then we have an ABA list that's the same. You know, I understand um, having a nephew on the spectrum that 
mom doesn't want to go on Google and search through 20 different evaluators to find one that takes her insurance. You know, that's, that's too much work. So we, we want to make these, these lists as easy for them as possible. Yeah, it needs to be quick. Any other resources we need to let our moms and dads know about that are out there? And we can, we'll put all the links on the Baby Your Baby podcast and on our website as well. Yeah, you know, the Medical Home Portal, so medicalhomeportal.org, is an incredible, incredible resource for parents because it has every single resource out there. It is like the Lamborghini of resources online. Um, you can find evaluators. Um, you can find respite care. Um, you can find really just about anything you're looking for. Uh, another one that I really love is the uh, Utah Parents Center. These are all mothers who have a kid with a developmental disability. Most of them have children with autism, and they've been through it. They know what it's like. They know what you are going through. Um, and that, that shared experience is just so important. Um, you know, so they can tell you, yeah, this is what I thought what the evaluation was going to be like. This is what it was actually like. Um, and that, so Utah Parents Center is it's just an incredible resource. And then also the Autism Council of Utah. Um, they're always advocating for things to make life better for folks with autism so that they can really live the life um, that they should be living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, parents need a support system too. The kid mm-hmm. needs, the child needs one and, the, and parents need one too. Yeah. Okay, as we wrap up the Baby Your Baby podcast here, Colin and Amanda, is there anything else you would want our parents to know about? And, you know, kind of what, what I, I would just like to, to finish on is just People with autism are such a rich part of our community. I mean, they can be brilliant with math or art, but they can also like make you laugh, and they're all so different. Um, so I was like, say, go out and meet someone with autism. They'll make your life better in, in so many so many ways. I mean, they're they really you, you view the world through a unique lens that can help us kind of see the world in a better way. Yeah, we might be able to see a little more clearly yes. that way after yeah. meeting somebody. Yes. Okay, Colin and Amanda, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this week's Baby Your Baby podcast. If you have a topic you'd like our Baby Your Baby experts to discuss, leave us a comment. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Baby Your Baby is a KUTV 2 News podcast and is sponsored by Intermountain Healthcare, Broadway Media, and the Utah Department of Health.